forget even, you know, the Republican Senate. Everybody, everybody says like, what are you going to do about Mitch McConnell? Um, <laughs> that's absolutely the wrong question. Yeah. Um, the right question would be, what are you going to do about Nancy Pelosi? Welcome to the death panel. This is another interview as part of our special Medicare for All week. Today, we are sitting down with Brian Grimm, DC Bureau Chief at The Intercept and author of the recent book, We've Got People, which came out uh, May of last year, right, Ryan? Is that correct? That's, yep, yep, that's right. So, Ryan, we're so, we're so happy to have you on, um, especially possibly because we read your articles all the time to see <laughs> see what's going on in Pelosi's office. And um, we are excited to have you here because I feel like your reporting kind of covers a huge aspect of this issue, which is sort of one part of the work that you do covers the sort of internal warfare that goes on within the party. Then also you cover like the actual sort of shift in the electorate and, and like intellectually, like where people want to go. Do you mind just for audience members who might not know who you are sort of backgrounding what you do, I guess? Well, sure. Right. So I'm part of the Washington press corps, but I'm kind of an unusual member of it because <laughs> I'm more kind of, I, I don't really hide my politics necessarily. Um, and I probably have more eclectic politics than, than most um, <laughs> Washington reporters. It's not, it's not like they're they all agree with me and are hiding it. Um, that so, would be cool. I wish uh, that was the case. That would be fun, although there'd be less uh, employment for me. Um, right. So I started at the Washington City Paper, which is the city's alt weekly, and I and I I feel like I kind of try to still bring a, uh, an alt weekly hmm. um, sensitivity to to journalism, which is kind of, you know, uh, skeptical of, of power and a little bit kind of, you know, it, it you know, all week this really rose in the air of punk rock. Um, and that's not my personality, but it is kind of my, my politics. Um, and so I, I was at Politico for a couple of years. And so I really do have a foot in the kind of, you know, Washington establishment camp. Like I know those mm -hmm. people, um, I get along with them on a personal level. I understand their incentives and how they operate. Um, and I spent, you know, eight or nine years at the Huffington Post and been at the Intercept for the last, you know, two, two plus years, um, which, you know, in both of those places to varying degrees, you know, keep a foot in the um, oh, kind sure. of in the mainstream, like not, you know, I don't know if Z mag still exists, but you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of good <laughs> radical magazines over the years, but they, a lot of them are speaking just to other radicals right. and, and not being read in, in like Washington and New York where, where decisions are being made. Um, <laughs> where, so we try to kind of bring a more, a more radical adversarial approach while still being, um, you know, taken seriously with a capital S by, by people in power. Yes. That's a very tight line to walk. I think you do it, it pretty well <laughs> though. <laughs> and I think what we all appreciate here at death panel about your writing is that you do a really good job sort of lifting up the rock and showing people what's underneath. One of my favorite things that uh, you wrote in this past year that came out was about the, uh, Nancy Pelosi's, uh, 
I forget what his actual position is, but Wendell Primus mm-hmm. of Pelosi's office. And um, all of the wonderful, cozy things that he's said to insurance executives. Mm-hmm. So I think right now a good way to start this is that like I think like Democratic leadership in general is a little more anxious about losing their leadership or losing their power than they are about anything else. Um, you are in those press, you know, you're in the actual press corps in DC. Um, do you mind talking a little bit about like sort of where we're at right now in the middle of the election with issues like Green New Deal and Medicare for all? Right. Yeah. You're, de- you're describing this uh, phenomenon that has <clears throat> kind of existed for probably for millennia uh, in <laughs> politics. And now we see it, you know, we see it really coming to the surface with the current um, Democratic Party establishment. The, the, the best, the best articulation of it came in like the early 1900s, this um, this uh, political boss in in Philadelphia hmm. was uh, making a bunch of decisions that were going to be um, thoroughly destructive um, to the party. And and his um, uh, he was a famous boss, but I can't remember his name. Um, it, one of his lieutenants said, "You know, if you do this, you're going to des- you're going to destroy uh, the party and you're going to destroy <laughs> the city." And he said, "Yes, but I will rule over the ruins." Cool. And and that is kind of <laughs> the attitude that a lot of you know democratic establishment figures have because if you if you kind of game it out and you think about the the different potential outcomes of an election, mm-hmm. um, if there are let's say that there are three, two of those three are okay with the democratic establishment and the third is not. So the, you know the first that would be okay with them is that they they win the nomination and they win the uh, general election. Mm-hmm. Um, now they're in power. Of course, that's that's wonderful for them. The second, <laughs> that would be okay with them is they win the nomination, but they lose the general election because then they still control um, the the party apparatus. Right, uh, they're ruling over the ruins there. Um, the outcomes that would not be um, okay with them would be a an, insur- an insurgent candidate who's outside of their sphere of influence winning a nomination and winning a general election. You know, in, in in some ways, a fourth one that might be okay with them is if an insurgent um, won a, won a nomination, then lost a general election, <laughs> and then they could use that to kind of discredit their internal opponents well, um, for, the, yeah. for the next forty years. You know, they still talk about McGovern. Yeah, I was just about to say in your book. Also, you bring up the Jesse Jackson example as well. Right. Yes, they were, um, and that was that was an interesting example, and people. Um, if they've if they read my book before Iowa, um, they'll kind of get and and Bernie happens to win Iowa. They will they will be able to get a glimpse of the kind of meltdown that's that's going to happen inside the Democratic Party and the reaction that's going to that's going to um, burst out trying to um, derail uh, the nomination when they realize that he, he uh, you know might actually win it. You know you're, you're starting to see that now. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think the the uh, seventh debate was like pretty pretty obvious of that with all the CNN, I would say their, their advertising push that they put together, right, that, well, that Liz Warren story. Right. If you think that's obvious though, um, you know, wait till you see what they have in store. Oh God. Um, you know, during the 88, um, primary when, when Jesse Jackson, after, you know, three dozen primaries and caucuses, you know, won a shocking upset in Michigan to kind of pull mm-hmm. to a delegate tie with Michael Dukakis. It was just a complete public meltdown uh, and an effective one. Um, mm-hmm. and, it, and it pushed it pushed enough Democratic voters away from Jackson so that they could nominate Dukakis. They were even planning on um, bringing Mario Cuomo to the convention <laughs> oh 
Another if, Cuomo. They, More yeah, Cuomo. Cuomo's daddy. If um, yeah. if Jackson didn't have a full 50%, they were going to deny him the nomination and give it to somebody like a Cuomo. So there'll be, you, you know, maybe Bloomberg is the corollary this, the new this Cuomo. time around. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's going to really, really upset uh, Andrew. But I would love to see Andrew get upset, but maybe over yes. something else like Bernie Sanders being the nominee. Um, so we're sort of in this like current... Uh, I would say like a deja vu state of, um, right. Except the big difference is, and this is what I get into in the second half of the book is the big difference is that, um, unlike Jesse Jackson, the current movement has the ability to aggregate small dollars yeah. in a way that allows the left punch back totally. back in 88, back in 88, they were just absorbing punches. Yeah. We have a little bit more than a one 800 number. Now Twitter is very helpful yes. for that. Yes. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Right. That was Jerry Brown's solution in 92. It was an 800 number. Um, and so now, right now, now you can actually. So now we have the movement. Right. We have people as, you, as your book right. called. <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, so we're, we're sort of in this current state where you would, you would assume that we're in a deja vu because that's very much like what a lot of other media narratives are sticking to. Obviously, they're not saying, oh, this has happened before, but it's the electability question, the pay for of Medicare for all, the feasibility, dog whistling, uh, you know, racist talking points or mildly racist talking points into people like Biden or Buttigieg's speeches in order to sort of do those same things. But like what people aren't saying is actually sort of what's different now. And I think a lot of that also has to sort of do with with where we're at in Congress now. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of like the reporting that you've done over the past maybe year about how Congress and the Democratic establishment has been sort of dealing with this progressive uh, flood from the left. Right. Well, in a lot of ways they haven't. And here, and it's, it's one of the most frustrating um, mm -hmm. and kind of galling, uh, what would you call it? Divergences that you see in, <laughs> yeah. in, um, in the U in U.S. politics today, and that's the the gap between not between necessarily forget even you know the Republican Senate. Everybody everybody says like, what are you going to do about Mitch McConnell? Um, <laughs> that's absolutely the wrong question. Yeah. Um, the right question would be, what are you going to do about Nancy Pelosi? <laughs> if you look at what they're talking about on the campaign trail, mm -hmm. and compare that to the symbolic legislation that is being negotiated in the democratic house of representatives, they are in completely different worlds. Yeah. Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden's um, proposals out on the campaign trail would be so far to the left of what even the congressional progressive caucus is pushing for in the house today that they wouldn't even be up for consideration. And because Nothing that the House is going to pass is going to become law. The media haven't focused on, and I don't blame them, you know, haven't, haven't focused on right. the debate in the House very much. But for instance, this year, you know, in 2018, Pelosi took the House back, arguing that they, what they uh, over drug prices. Like, that, mm -hmm. they're, they're basically Trump was their number one issue. Number two was drug prices. Right. And so they wanted to pass a drug price bill. They were actually trying to do something that would become law mm -hmm. um, that appears like it may not happen. But so they're instead they're, you know, writing legislation that they can say, look, give us the full majority in the white house. And this is the kind of legislation that we can enact into law. That's, that's their, that's their 
theory of the case. That's their argument for why they should be in the majority. So if you look at that, rather than looking at what people are saying out on the presidential campaign trail, it gets much more depressing. Right. The, the House Democrats, uh, you know, were pushing this bill um, and now finally passed a bill that finally allows the government um, to negotiate using, you know, the, 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 weight of the health and human services department with right. drug companies to lower drug prices. But Pelosi was trying to limit it or to, to 25 uh, right. drugs a year. Right. You know, there are thousands of drugs. So now like the thousands. American, <laughs> the American healthcare system has already just a, a massive lottery. Um, mm-hmm. And if, and it's just like a massive lottery, almost everybody loses it. And so again, it'd be a lottery. Like if, if the prescription drug that you happen to need happens to be one of those 25 um, that they negotiate a discount for, then congratulations, you know, you've won <laughs> right. the American healthcare lottery. Right. Um, you haven't totally won everything because you need that prescription drug for whatever you didn't win. The Progressive Caucus fought mightily, um, threatening to take the entire thing down. Um, and they were able to push the number up slightly, the number so, of drugs bar- that would be barely, negotiated. Though. Yeah. <laughs> And what couldn't, what didn't even make it in was surprise billing. Yeah. Like, think about that. The Democratic House, in a symbolic piece of legislation, can't pass a bill (laughs) that says a hospital can't (laughs) completely steal from you. Yeah, which is kind of amazing, especially in the context of everything that has come out, like with the Zuckerberg Hospital in San Francisco or the hospital Mm -hmm. VA that was suing its own employees who would come into the emergency room. Yeah. So if you're following that, it can be very um, disorienting Mm -hmm. um, and demoralizing because you say, well, these are the lawmakers who... (laughs) Like 95% of them are going to get reelected. So these are the guys and women who are going to enact Medicare for all. No, probably not. Hopefully. (laughs) I mean, so the argument and and I interviewed Sanders in September and pressed him on this. You know, I said, you know, Richard Neal, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee is staunchly opposed to Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. Um, You can't do Medicare for all without running it through the Ways and Means Committee. Um, Pramila Jayapal has, you know, we're going to war with him just to get him to have a hearing. Right. And, he, and as we reported, um, he had a meeting with his committee members the day before the Medicare for all hearing that was forced down his throat mm-hmm. and ordered all of them not to use the word Medicare for all <laughs> during the Medicare for all hearing. Right. And that was um, after that was also after the um, the whole thing where they were trying to restrict who could testify. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No activists, no one that's ever worked on a campaign for, you know, universal programs before. Right. Right. Like and you had to have someone as sick and dying as Addie Barkin to get them to go back on it. Right. And so I talked to. So I asked uh, Santa, I said, you know, there's a uh, primary challenger to Richie Neal. Um, hmm. who is the mayor of uh, Holyoke, Massachusetts. The town passed a resolution endorsing Medicare for all. Cool. Um, he's running on Medicare for all. And, you know, Sanders has not endorsed him. And I understand-ish, you know, why, because there are relationships within the institution that are important, but that's not what, that's not a political revolution. Right. Um, you know, if you wait until, Sanders is already president to start challenging, you know, the Richie Neals of the world. You know, you you may lose the Senate by tw- by twenty twenty two, or may, you know, maybe you lose mm-hmm. the House by twenty twenty two. So it is frustrating because as you look at the 
legislation that the House Democrats are crafting now, and you ask yourself, well, how, okay, what is what is the force that's going to change that political dynamic in 2021? You say, okay, the answer is Sanders winning the White House will mm-hmm. change the way that these people uh, understand, you know, change the way that they understand politics. Um, maybe. Right. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really putting a lot of faith in that to, you know, postpone um, endorsing other, you know, right. uh, elements of the revolution along the way. Yeah, I mean, I think neither the CPC alone nor uh, either single branch could do any of this. And, you know, it's it's actually cool. We're going to I'm going to be speaking later today with a, someone who's challenging. Uh, what's her name? Diana uh, DeGette in mm-hmm. Colorado. And one of the things that we were talking about is um, her name is uh, Charlie Madison Winters um, is, uh, you know, to guess not really surveying the community has been in there for 20 years is like an easy reelection every single year. And the best thing that she's done is like go for drug prices um, because of a personal narrative of her daughter with type one diabetes. And even in the like stuff that she says about it, like around town, you know, it's like the community is suffering. Everyone is miserable and has no health care or no housing. And it's another bandaid. And I think, you know, from the, the perspective of organizers, people are very worried that, you know, I think that without Sanders, we can't do this one, but also that it's like a legislative impossibility. And that is also something that's like drummed up often from the establishment. So do you think that like the CPC could actually be an effective vehicle for change sort of, or they're not, it are they could not be. enough? They, yeah, they could be. I mean, well, it, you know, there's the question of there, is it not enough or is it too much? Um, you know, there, as, as AOC has criticize them for there is no litmus test to get into the CPC. If you feel like you want to be in the CPC and members would have lots of different electoral reasons for wanting, wanting that brand, mm-hmm. um, you're in pay your $5,000 to the, the CPC pack. Um, and, and, and boom. And so yeah. they've got more than 90 members, and, but, um, you know, how many of them are going to be there when you need them? Right. And, you know, the answer tends to be not many. Well, I think in the, the drug price and the budget bill, we saw that it was not really. But uh, yeah, that's right. But on the on the drug price bill, that was the first time they really threatened to take the whole thing down. And nobody believed them. In fact, um, over the weekend, I, I had members of the leadership uh, staff texting me. Are they are these guys serious? Really? Wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> What are you really serious? They've been saying that they're serious. Well, yeah, they've been saying they're serious for years. Like, I, I, I think they're pretty serious this time. <laughs> and they were stunned. Like they could not like, but that's how, um, that's, that's where, that's where their relationship is that, that, that they'd literally be asking me, right. um, really are these, the CPC, they're actually going to follow through on a threat. And, uh, you know, they did and they got some concessions. So like, they at least now proved to the rest of the caucus that, look, if we make a threat and stick by it, make it serious, like we can actually improve a bill. We just yeah. have to be willing to do it. So, you know, it has to be something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Whether they're constitutionally capable of it in the long run, I don't know. Can we talk a little bit about the staffers in leadership? You know, they obviously have a lot of influence on what what policy actually makes it to anywhere. Is the like Washington establishment right now? Like, what are like what are they actually concerned about? Are they worried about people who can't afford medical treatment or who have no homes? Or 
Is it more well, about? Yeah, yes, but you know they feel like if they're too public about that worry, that the you know the ghost of Reagan is going to come back and and they're going to lose the majority and you know they, they it's that old line that you know you can't do anything good for people if you're not in power mm-hmm. and that becomes a self fulfilling um, kind of cul de sac of just seeking power. Yeah, you, you know it's very easy to see how that would devolve. I mean, because it's it's of course is true. Like if 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 Republicans are in power, then yeah, you're not going to be able to do anything for the most part for, to help people. Um, and so then it just becomes easier and easier to justify every um, compromise um, with your principles, mm-hmm. you know, in order to obtain that power. And that by the time you get it, you you're not able to use it anymore because of the way that you acquired it. Right. So if it's not people, that's the problem. Then what is the problem that's holding them back? That's stopping them from feeling like if they move to push forward legislation, even as, as you were saying, like closer to what Pete Buttigieg wants than what's actually being proposed. Why, like why, what's holding them back? Is it the, the threat of not having the money for the fundraising portion of it? I mean, in your book, you talk a lot about like the changes in the DCCC um, well, in the 80s. So mm-hmm. It's more, um, there's a big fear, not that they won't get the money, but money will be spent against them hmm. that could kill them. And so money, money does a lot of its work in the shadows and never having, you know, just in, in the never having been spent. And so, you know, if you're going to take on an industry and you know that if you do, you're likely to get uh, attacked by them by with hundreds of millions of dollars. And you're like, eh, <laughs> maybe I don't take on that industry. Yeah. And that's a much softer and gentler way of kind of corrupting yourself um, because you're not doing anything. You know, right. You're not You're not hurting anyone actively. You're not hurting anyone. You're just not doing something that probably wasn't going to work. Right. You know, you, you can convince yourself that you know, the votes weren't going to be there. The, the health insurance industry was going to win anyway. And, and yeah, and you know what? Didn't that guy show me a poll that like there are some people that don't even like this? <laughs> um, yep. And so then you're like, yeah, you know what? Let, let's, you know, let's make sure that we're, you know, using the, the political capital that we have in the most effective way, you know, to help the most vulnerable people that we can. Right. Um, and then next thing you know, you're, you're now convinced of that idea. So now you become hostile to anybody um, who's doing the opposite and you become extra hostile because you know, you've kind of made a, Mm-hmm. compromise and and so you you're there's a little bit of self-loathing that's starting to um sink in and and then that you know projects as as anger and hostility towards the left who is who you're like you know i've been fighting for medicare for all since you were you know in diapers as close as my basement's full of signs for single pair right um and that comes from a genuine place of you know you know mingled emotions mm-hmm. um and you know expresses itself in in ugly ways so yeah, the the way that money corrupts is a lot more kind of sophisticated in a way, in the way that it works on your psyche and your soul, um, than just you know if you do this, we'll give you money. Right. Yeah. I mean, so would you say right now that we don't really have the legislative possibility at the moment, or do you think that that argument is sort of part of that sort of? Cul-de-sac? I think of a demo. I think of a Democrat won the White House, they would definitely have a window to wrap wrap to significantly expand public health insurance. I don't know exactly what form that would take, mm-hmm. um, but I think that that would be doable. Um, you know, it passed the House in 2009. Right, exactly. Um, um, it, you know, it had 50 plus votes in 2009. So, 
I think there is hope on that front. I mean, I think one of the things that like uh, our audience would be curious to hear about is sort of like who is their real enemy in this and like how do they start to learn how to maybe identify ways of preventing, maybe not preventing people from getting into office who are thinking this way, but preventing this style of of like manipulation of public policy by private industries. If people, you know, if people feel politically protected, if people feel that they have access to, you know, fi campaign financing um, and the ability to defend themselves effectively from attacks, then then they're going to end up doing the things that are most popular with the with the public rather than, um, you know, risk aversion related to fear of, of corporate money. Um, right. So so setting up those those structures that, that can provide, you know, the financing and the organ organization for for people who do the right thing is really important. Right. I mean, are there, are there like, from your perspective, are there like weak points or, or play like ways beyond just, you know, what we're doing now that would, that would tip the scales or start moving well, to break the cycle that we seem to be stuck in? I think the wine cave was a bit of a watershed <laughs> moment. Yeah. Um, in the sense that it was the first time that I can think of ever that campaign finance really landed a blow on someone and potentially a fatal blow, you know, you, depending on what you count as the fatal blow and assuming that the Buddha judge, you know, has been fatally wounded, um, the, then you could go back and point to a number of different things, but that's certainly one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and he was doing, he was climbing then he was at the, he, it was the top, but it, it really tattooed his face. Um, in, in a way that had a political resonance that never has in the past. So long-term, the question is whether you can tattoo Republicans with that corruption as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I think, I think it's possible. I think, it, you know, it would be possible to have in the, in the not too distant future, a two party system where one of the parties is mostly small dollar funded. Right. Um, and the other is not. And, and that gives, you know, for independence and, swing voters that's something that they can understand right exactly um i mean you've been researching this a long time and particularly looking into like the career of people like Rahm Emanuel whose brother writes tons of op-eds against Medicare for all and also advocates for people being euthanized at like 70 or whatever. Well, who's this? Zeke Emanuel. Ezekiel. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, so you sort of have this like the all these guys from the 80s who took lessons from Republican uh, tactics at the time and applied them to the Democratic machine. So we've got sort of like one one problem on that end where we have the remnants of that that are still trying to you know, maintain power and do the least harm. Like, how do we actually, after everything that Republicans have publicly owned up to, even including, like, um, I think a judge that Trump appointed uh, today said that uh, using a transgender person's pronouns in a court of law was just a courtesy and not required. Um, so how do we even, like, go after these people? I mean, you're, you report on them all the time. What's your thought on that? I, mean, I, th I think a lot of that stuff has to just come in the wake of kind of taking power on a broad, hmm. you know, on a broad progressive message. And then you end up, you end up filling in a lot of those um, spaces behind you. Um, in other words, I, for instance, I think if Mitt Romney wins the election in 2012, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you don't get gay marriage 
in 2013. Right. Um, you know, so electing the first black president in 2008 on this hope and change multiracial coalition message, you know, even though it didn't, it didn't deliver the legislatively like people had hoped mm-hmm. it resonated with the culture and kind of, and it kind of changed the politics of the culture in that it moved things, it, you know, it allowed people to come in behind that and say, yeah, you, if you agree with this, then what, you know, what about marriage equality, for instance? Right. right and exactly. even though, even though Obama wasn't publicly for marriage equality when he ran, it, it helped shift those politics. So I think if you, if you sweep in into power, you know, with a broad mandate, then things fall, kind of fall in line behind that. And peop- and, and it, it kind of defeats some of the opposition to it without even having that fight. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you try to have that fight at, on the front, you know, on the front, like as if like, you know, think about it as, if a, as a battle line mm-hmm. and, and the people who want that, you know, c- kind of charge ahead into the battlefield and take on the entire army on the other side of the field, they're going to get chopped to pieces Mm -hmm. but if they come forward as part of you know a a huge wave then they're going to have a much better chance of being part of a winning team right and i think and and i think that probably long term will be one of the bigger challenges and always has been a big challenge for the left because the right is a you know pretty homogenous collection of people you know it's like white men (laughs) and, and and some white women um who are trying to protect their wealth and privilege. <laughs> and so it's much easier to organize that. Right. Whereas the left is, you know, civil rights groups, environmental groups, and on and on. Now, I think they've left has done a lot better at, you know, in, in, incorporating a, you know, a non-parity version of intersectionality and in the way that everybody kind of understands that their struggles are all linked together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, that's a big step forward. And so that, that like, that has been a challenge for the left and the, the people are recognizing it. The problem becomes that in a lot of the, in a lot of, in a lot, in a lot of groups, there is a, there's a pull toward the most radical member of that group. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody w- wants to be, you know, in line with the, the, the most radical position that is tenable. And so that's how you can wind up with a lot of infighting among groups. And if that happens before the left is kind of won, the right is happy to, to play, you know, e- exploit those. Right. You know, on Twitter today, Donald Trump is having a little, having a fun little field day with the, the Bernie Sanders, um, Elizabeth Warren, or uh, whatever. He loves yeah. to like say like, "Oh, look, they're trying to steal it from Bernie again." Right. You know, you think Donald Trump has any like, <laughs> sense of fair play, or um, is no. actually rooting? You know, he just loves. Their, you know, they love to stoke the division. Yeah, I mean. So like general attitudes from leadership towards eliminating private insurance, like as a whole, like if we took the industry out of it as a factor and the fact that they all expect the industry to lobby so hard against it, then most people would probably support everyone having health care coverage. Um, non-means tested, you know, free at the point of service, et cetera. You know, this is a lot, it's a lot of people to, uh, basically get out of office or get out of a job in order to have that movement sort of enter the establishment. But I do feel like stuff like AOC's pack that she started are kind of hopeful. Like, how do you see that? Like having some positive impact considering, um, that the, the CPC hasn't been super willing in the past to, actually exercise their power 
you know, they're feeling pressure from the left as well um, mm-hmm. to, to start to deliver. Uh, and so, and they also, you know, for the first time really do have people, Mark Pocan and Ramil Jayapal and Rokana, you know, who are serious about right. um, what they're doing, which might sound harsh, but the, the CPC um, for, for a long time was not very effective. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think that there's there's definitely hope like there's people are doing what they can. Right. I mean, I think one of the things that Phil uh, Rocco, one of my co-hosts and I talk about all the time is sort of is this like new electorate or like idea enough um, is like the real answer. We need to like build m- multiple organizations or institutions like this. That the, the answer is complexity. But, you know, it's like the CPC as it is can't really like, as you said, like it it's on those members to show up. And I think right. you see like a lot of um, like particularly in 2018, I think we probably would have won regardless because just as a reaction to Trump. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So but at the same time, the Democratic Party spent a lot of money to undermine Justice Democrat candidates. So what's their, where are they going with this? What's their plan? Are they just trying to like get everyone so miserable and, and tired and, or just shut out contracts or something? Like, I don't know. Yeah. The, you know, the, the DCCC now, right. Has this policy that if you, if you work at all with candidates who are cha- challenging incumbents, then you can't do any work um, for any other candidates which makes it very hard to make a living Mm -hmm. um, as a, um, as a consultant. And so, you know, they, they may end up creating a a kind of small industry of people on the left who know how to do the, the, the basics in a way that the left doesn't have now. Like for instance, challengers are having a very hard time finding people who do compliance, FEC compliance work. Hmm. Um, You know, it's, it's, it's a pain to file with the FEC. Yeah. Um, and you don't want, if you get it wrong, your opponent will find the error and will, will light up your campaign. You know, could end your campaign, make you look like you're corrupt or stealing or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so getting the, getting those filings right and keeping your records right is extremely important. And so, you know, there's an industry of people, lawyers who do FEC compliance work. Um, it's not... Like people have, you know, consultants get a bad name. Like, a, like all consultants right. are just grifters. Right. But, you know, some consultants are just accountants. Right. Um, basic, you know, or lawyers who are helping you follow FEC laws. And the campaigns need those people. And, or mail, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, some, I'm sure some mailing consultants rip off candidates. Others are quite good. You know, there is a real art and science to, knowing you know th- how to produce the best mailer you know where right. to find um the union print shops mm-hmm. um all, all of the well, ev- all of that takes skill and time uh, and then after that figuring out how to target them mm-hmm. um who who should get these mailers it's not you know where do i get the addresses um you know these are skills that people have developed over the years and, and now the DCCC is trying to make sure that that candidates who already are facing um, enormous obstacles and trying to unseat an incumbent um, have to do it without any of any of that That's either. Right. Yeah. I mean, do you see a, a space where something like could really 
come to exist robustly coexisting with the DCCC or that, you know, it's just, if they take, yeah, they'd have to take over. Um, yeah. you know, if Bernie Sanders wins and, you know, there could, there certainly could be a play for the DCCC after that. Um, but that's, this is a long know, project. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And we don't have that much time, so... No, we really don't, unfortunately. I mean, one of the things that I think is great, though, is that it's a lot easier now to sort of spot similarities in messaging across candidates and sort of watch those uh, dictated lines be... Delivered. I think the Soleimani like assassination was a good example where you had people refusing to use the word assassinate and then that becomes a news cycle for a week. And that to me very much feels like part of it, um, as does the numerous people like um, my personal favorite, Matt Iglesias of Vox, who... Um, likes to harp on the like legislative impossibility, legislative impossibility argument. Um, from your perspective, is that necessarily true or are they just sort of like, is, is, are people like, you don't have to say him specifically, I'm saying him, but are people who write like the way that Matt Iglesias does and, and operate that way, just sort of part of that, uh, leadership network or their root system, shall we say? Well, it's a, in some ways, you know, what they're doing is, is they're predicting and analyzing the future based on the past, which is you know, based on their, their best reading of the past, which is, um, you know, that's completely defensible um, mm-hmm. thing to do. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure he means well. Yeah, I'm sure most, um, yeah. But not, probably not always. Um, I'm sure <laughs> plenty of times he means to actually make people mad on purpose. Oh, that's for um, sure. But he <laughs> so, like, that's his that's a personal flaw he just loves attention yeah so um you know so it doesn't account for that that type of analysis doesn't account for a changing world um mm-hmm. and it, it 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 might end up being right but it but it also might miss major shifts and that are going on because it, you know we're in a very confusing time and nobody can really um predict the future um, based on the past mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, totally. I mean, do you feel like that um, part of the problem is that a lot of people in these jobs uh, working for leadership actually are not really experiencing a lot of the things that uh, that that everyday people are like the more working class experience, like with um, like rapid insurance cycling or uh, just not being able to possibly even like afford to go get treatment in the first place because I mean like Congress and and their staff have pretty decent insurance from what I understand um, and it seems to me like that there's sort of a disconnect between uh, in the understanding of the urgency of the situation right yeah I think that's right and part of it goes back to the US never having um, uh, a workers party mm-hmm. um, you know it is a it's a very you know with the, the two-party system developed before there was really organized labor and neither of the parties has ever, you know, has the Democrats have in recent years represented workers, but you know, we're not really a party of workers. Right. And as a result, you get a ton of people who are, like you said, a little disconnected from 
you know, the problems that they're supposed to be addressing. I mean, you wrote you wrote about in your book about how, you know, essentially the like when this shift happened in in the 80s that we're sort of looking at again now. Um, and we, I, we talked about this with Adam Gaffney, too, how many times um, something like Medicare for all or a single payer system has come up. You know, you had it at the very beginning of the AMA's founding. You had people fighting for single payer and AMA fighting against it. You know, we had during uh, what was it Eisenhower and then we had it again in the 70s there was another push I'd mm-hmm. like to think that like your book is a very inspiring receipt shall we, shall we say that this time is a little bit different do you want to talk about that for a second because I feel like that could be a, a really hopeful way to sort of round out everything for the listeners yeah no I hope I hope that's right you know there have been so many near misses and missed opportunities over the last century um Truman or then, you know, Nixon, Mm -hmm. you know, almost did it. Um, And then, you know, the uh, ACA falling short. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the wake of, in the wake of the financial crisis, which has kind of radicalized an entire generation, you know, you're, you're seeing, uh, you know, new possible, new possibilities open up um, that, you know, a lot is going to hinge on, on this, this next few months of the presidential primary because there isn't much of a bench after, um, you know, after, after Sanders and Warren, um, because of the way that the democratic party basically shut out progressives, Mm -hmm. it lost several generations of, of possible talent. You know, nobody, nobody in the left could, could really rise in the, inside the democratic party after 1980. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, 40 years of, of lost talent. Um, and so, that's why you have um, Warren, who used to be a Republican, so she right. kind of snuck around him. Um, <laughs> Sanders, who's not a Democrat, right? Um, and then after that, you've got AOC. Right. You know, there's a was forty year, forty plus year <laughs> um, gap between fifty almost. No, I guess four, really fifty years. Yeah, yeah. Sanders is about almost fifty years older than her, um, <laughs> and and that's why um, because. Of, all the party was raising was Rahm Emanuel's instead. Um, right. And so, you know, that's, that's, it's, it's good that the new, new generation is coming. Um, but I don't know if they're coming fast enough. Do you feel like the generation that are like the same age as Rahm Emanuel? I'm thinking about my mom specifically who, uh, she and I got in a big argument on New Year's Eve because, um, you know, she said, like, we really need this. Like, what happens if it doesn't happen? Like, we're going to just have to vote for Biden. I'm like, well, yeah, it sucks, but that's why we're fighting. And she went into sort of talking about the despair she'd experienced her whole life. Essentially, every single person she voted for was a disappointment. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and she's like voting in Chicago and New York and Los Angeles. And like, yeah, like we've done nothing but disappoint a lot of boomers who maybe the surviving left boomers or whatever. Um, and I think that, you know, that's one of the bigger hurdles that we actually have to get over in the movement is sort of, um, you know, blaming identity groups or blaming like a generation for something that also happened to them, not that they necessarily did, you know? Yep. No, I think that's well said. Is there anything we didn't get to that you wanted to talk about? Uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time because I'm sure you're really busy, but... No, I think you covered it pretty good. 
We really appreciate you coming on. Um, everyone on the panel is uh, very sad that they couldn't make it today, but Phil's actually doing some very important work. So I told him he was not allowed to stop doing his interviews for because uh, he's doing a study right now on the implementation of the 2020 census. Gotcha. So he's been talking to people in Alaska who are having a lot of problems. I but uh, yeah, I think he said something the other day, like, I'm a little concerned. There is like essentially a, a full lack of a federal government and certain aspects of running Alaska right now when like nonprofit organizations are trying to step in and it's going really badly. Hmm. <laughs> So, you know, but we really appreciate you taking the time and uh, we appreciate the work that you've been doing. And so thank you. You got it. You got it. Thank you so much, Ryan. I appreciate it. And you got uh, it. Ha- have a wonderful weekend. Okay, you too. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Medicare for All Week from the Death Panel. Subscribe wherever podcasts are distributed to hear a brand new interview on single-payer healthcare every day until the 11th of February. And support us at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod for patron-only episodes, and to help us make series like Medicare for All week possible. We are entirely listener-supported and extremely lacking in quality healthcare. Goodbye for now. Until next time patreon.com slash death panel pod.